Chapter 3, Communion, The Way of Love I, Alyssa, take you, Joe, to be my husband. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. Through speaking these words, through Joe's marital promises to me, and through the prayers of the priests, we enter into a covenant together. As I reflect on our wedding ceremony, I'm struck by the fact that our lives completely changed through words. Good times and bad, sickness and health. So many real-life experiences go through my mind, and we haven't even been married for that long. Over the years, we have been challenged and deeply blessed. It's amazing to reflect on how little I actually knew when I made those promises. I had no idea what was in store, but I knew the Lord would provide for us. And he has provided, thank God, my own willpower and desire to love Joe and my kids just fall short sometimes. They need more than just me. They need Jesus loving them through me. My weakness and sin often take center stage, and I fail to show my family love and honor, let alone common decency. I truly need the Lord and a regular prayer life to live my vocation well. Without the Lord giving us a vision and the grace to live the vision for commitment and joy in marriage, it can be hard not to be discouraged. Sometimes when we're talking about the ideals of Christian marriage, we can forget that for many people today, divorce is never fully off the table. A more honest promise for some would be, I take you now and I'll try really hard to make this work, but who knows what will happen in the future. While I received joyful support from my coworkers when I got married, thank you Lord for SPO, my husband received a mixed bag of reactions in his secular work environment. Even the nicest of guys responded with cynicism when they found out he was going to get married. One superior in his field even encouraged a group of coworkers to keep their vacation savings fund a secret from their wives or girlfriends in case things didn't work out. But we know that through God's grace, anything is possible and that he can move mountains and make crooked ways straight. With God, these promises communicate more than just, I'm going to try my best to love you. With God, there's freedom to enter into marriage with joy and trust and freedom. Joe and I have experienced depth, laughter, and opportunity for tremendous growth. I'm so grateful that this is the vocation that God has called me to. In this chapter, I'm excited to explore biblical themes of marriage how earthly marriages reflect who God is in our relationship with Him, the power of Christian marriages in our world today, as well as some practicals for how someone who is discerned and openness to married life can move forward in the pursuit of marriage. God does not abandon His plan for marriage. God's plan for marriage is seen from the beginning when He says for the first time in Genesis that something isn't good. Quote, it's not good for man to be alone, from Genesis 2.18. We're made for communion with others, and we desire it more than we even realize or are willing to admit sometimes. But where does that desire come from? It comes from the fact that we were made in the image and likeness of God, and God is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
He has a familial nature, which we are invited into as his adopted sons and daughters. While the Trinity is divine, completely perfect, and so far beyond our comprehension, we're still called to look to the Trinity as the model for marriage, and marriage is meant to be a mirror of the Trinity and of Christ's relationship with his church. Adam and Eve were the first model of marriage to us and mirror of the Trinity. In the beginning, their love and communion was free, without shame, guilt, or any conflict. After the fall, we see conflict and shame enter their relationship, as they were now naked with shame. The scriptures give us a grim picture of the way the fall mars the marriage covenant. In later generations, as human sin continues to deface God's original design, Lamech is the first to have multiple wives. Abraham takes a surrogate to bear his child instead of trusting that God would give Sarah a baby, and King David commits adultery with Bathsheba. These are examples among many in scripture of the destructive forces that stand against marriage, of adultery, incest, polygamy, and contraception, to name a few. There is a pattern here. Throughout the Old Testament, deviations from the covenants that God has initiated with his people often go hand in hand with deviations from the marriage covenant. Yet God never gives up pursuing his people, and he always goes back to the language of marriage, even when it's certainly not lived out as he intended. Why does marriage matter so much? Again and again, it is God's preferred sign for the way he wants to relate to us as his people. The entire Old Testament is a graphic account of this marriage coming apart with God as husband doing everything he can to bring back his unfaithful bride. This is from Hosea 2, 16-22. Therefore I will allure her now. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak persuasively to her. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as on the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. On that day... You shall call me my husband, and you shall never again call me my Baal. I will remove from her mouth the names of the idols. They shall no longer be mentioned by their name. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me with justice and with judgment, with loyalty and with compassion. I will betroth you to me with fidelity, and you shall know the Lord When looking at the stark contrast between the covenantal ideal and the many broken marriages, not only in the Old Testament, but also today, it's hard to see how marriage could be a mirror of the Trinity. Why would God still be using marriage to describe our relationship with him? Clearly, this isn't working the way you have intended, God. Do you have a plan B? No, his plan is greater than we could imagine, and he does continue to pursue us as his bride. Because God keeps marriage as such a strong focus of scripture, we have to conclude that there's something essential that we need to be paying attention to here. Marriage must hold great weight to the Lord. By looking at how he created marriage, we can actually understand some characteristics of our own relationship with God. For example, fidelity. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, from Mark 10.6. God always intended for marriage to be monogamous. An exclusive, consistent relationship frees us to love with an undivided heart. 
That kind of relationship is also what God desires with his people. God is a jealous God, and he reminds us again and again in Scripture to have no other God but him. That means no other idol, nothing that would distract us from him or lead us away from our relationship with him. He teaches us fidelity by his unwavering fidelity to us. And fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply. From Genesis 1.28. Dr. John Bergsma, professor of scripture at Franciscan University, once said, Our powers of procreation are in the image of God, an image of the overflowing nature of the love of God. It's not restrained or self-contained. It is the nature of God's love to overflow. Marriage is meant to be fruitful, as is God's nature. He desires to bear fruit in our lives and throughout every age. The New Testament continues and even consummates the marriage language of the old. Jesus is called the bridegroom and the church is his bride. In Jesus' coming, the bridegroom comes to rescue his bride. The Father sends the Son to reconcile us to himself in a familial way, to make us his kin once again. And not only that, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we may live as true children of God, both in our relationship with God and our relationships with one another, including in marriage. Something has, in fact, changed in the way the New Testament speaks of the marriage bond. In Christ, the infidelity of the Old Covenant is substituted by the action of grace. In his coming, Jesus gives us the ability to live as a people, faithful to the covenant as the Father has always intended us to be. Christian marriage. The definition of marriage has changed more in our lifetimes than it has in the past 2,000 years. So before going any farther, we need to clarify what we mean here. We're not referring to legal marriage or secular marriage. We're talking about Christian marriage, which has been given to us by God and elevated to a sacrament through Jesus Christ. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1601. The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament. With Jesus, marriage has been elevated to more than a natural institution. Now it is a sacrament. Every sacrament is both a sign, it's pointing to something beyond itself, and an instrument or a channel of grace. In the life of the church, then, we see the full restoration of God's original intent. Marriage has once again come to signify the unbreakable covenant of God and his people of divinity and humanity, of eternity and time. In light of this, the good of spouses and children mentioned above is actually holiness and eternal life with God. What an incredible, awe-inspiring gift. Husbands and wives are not only called to love one another as Christ loves, but because of baptism and because of the sacrament of matrimony, they have the grace to actually live this out. Spouses are called to mirror the highest of loves, and God gives us a way to actually realize this ideal, sacramental grace. God's plan for marriage was vital then and still is today. In the Old Testament, 
the New Testament, and the life of the Church, across the whole sweep of salvation history, the singular sign of God's unshakable union with us is the covenant of marriage. That's why it still matters so much today. The sacramental sign of husband and wife freely chosen, fully embraced in sacrificial living, and generously open to life, this is the irreplaceable icon of God's saving plan the enduring fidelity and fruitfulness of our union with him. Yes, it's about the holiness of spouses and children, but it's also essential to the work of salvation for the whole world. We're all reading this chapter with a variety of experiences and perspectives. And to understand and appreciate the importance of God's plan for marriage doesn't mean that we have to limit ourselves to our own experience. But it's important to understand the lens we are looking at marriage with. Our own experience of seeing others' marriages, especially our own parents, is extremely important to acknowledge as we engage this material. So discuss. What kinds of marriages have played a role in your life? How do you think that has affected your disposition towards marriage? For me, there were times in my vocational discernment where I subconsciously viewed marriage as the more comfortable option for my future. To be chosen by someone and loved by them till death do us part. To continue to live in the world and not have to give up my material possessions. To build a family with someone where I would experience deep belonging. Sign me up. Many of those comfortable realities and desires are fine and some even good. But the reality is that to be married and to become a parent is far from comfortable. As I was gathering input on the topic of marriage for this book from fellow SPO missionaries, John Stevenson said to me, happiness is not the point of our vocation. It's a fruit. Jesus came to defeat sin and death and to get his world back. Vocation is my place in God's army, not my retirement home. There is a heavy responsibility in our day and age for married couples, especially as they become parents, to be aware of what's happening in the culture and have a discerning approach to the decisions that they make. Some examples of this could be around how to educate their kids, what is being taught in schools, what kinds of extracurricular activities they'll participate in, what media intake will look like as a family, etc. Luke 17.2 says it would be better for him if a millstone were put around his neck and he be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Yikes, God does not bestow the duty of parenthood lightly. Yet at the same time, Christian families are not called to hide. Maybe you've heard this adage, sex is for marriage, marriage is for family, family is for society. Families were once the building block of our society. There was a time when Christian families made up the majority of society in America. But according to the Census Bureau study in 2020, only 18% of American families now have a married mother and father. We saw in the Old Testament that a deviation from God's plan resulted in negative spiritual implications. But let's flip that. I can only imagine what spiritual fruit, strong, holy, and generous marriages bear in our culture today, even if we only make up a small percent of the population. People take notice of a married person that actively seeks to serve and to be a self-gift to their spouse, children, and all of those around them. Marriage is so ordinary to us that we don't always realize the gravity of this vocation and the power that it can hold in our world. 
Why would it be under such a constant assault if it wasn't a threat to the kingdom of darkness? If only we were attentive to both what is at stake and what is to be gained. If only we truly viewed our vocations as a place in God's army and not a retirement home. We look around and there is no doubt that the destroyers of family life are ready to fight. Why does it seem like the defenders of it are less aware, less prepared, less convicted of the imperative to enter the battle? Whether, when, and who. I think the answer to the question I just asked lies in readiness prior to entering vocation. It's hard to fight a battle that you're not prepared for. When it comes to dating and marriage, it's typical to see someone try to answer the question of whom should I date before answering the question of whether to date or when to date. I really like this guy or girl and she or he likes me, wants to date me, I must be called to marriage. An approach of asking whether, when, and then whom gives God permission to speak as opposed to already having a decision made. The strongest foundation for a holy marriage entails strengthening our relationship with God, growing in self-knowledge, receiving freedom and healing from wounds, and growing in Christian maturity as a young disciple. The most fruitful way that I know to do this is to take time where you intentionally set aside dating. For me, the decision to set aside dating for a time totally changed my life. After years of directionless dating and trying to give my life to the Lord while simultaneously grasping at whatever hopeful relationship passed my way, I decided to hit pause. Taking this time of intentional singleness enabled me to experience a greater trust in God's will for my life. By trusting Him with a comparatively small time, I began to recognize that I could trust Him with my long-term life decisions too. It's important to note that a time of being intentionally single is primarily aimed at growing in single-heartedness, that is making God our ultimate source of happiness. This is essential no matter where our future life state may take us. A season for singleness can also be used as a time for intentional life state discernment, it's true, but that decision deserves its own prayerful consideration since timing and personal readiness are so important. Pursuing the vocation of marriage. I want to conclude by offering some vision for dating, though I know I'm jumping ahead a bit. I'm going to presuppose I'm talking to someone who has done the necessary prep work in discerning weather, and there's more on this in chapter five, and is now in a good position to consider when and who. For most single people, dating is the ocean you're currently swimming in. You know these waters well. Who's dating? Who wants to date me? Who do I want to date? All very healthy questions if you ask me. Dating is so good and so important. Why? Because marriage is so good and so important. That's why it's worth talking about here. If you want to have a good, strong marriage, you need to have a good, strong dating relationship first. So what could that look like? The question of when is the first to tackle for those who have discerned the move towards marriage. Specifically, when should I date? It may or may not be the right time. Yes, even though you may feel called to marriage, you may not be ready to date. And you may have little time due to the pressures of college. You may be swimming in debt and unsure of your future work possibilities. You may feel called to focus more of your time on building brotherhood and sisterhood or to being generous in a particular way to mission. 
when you have discerned the question of when and you move on to the question of who, there are a few things that we can keep in mind. Dating itself, while it's not primarily meant to discern a call to marriage, is discernment for who you should marry. While attraction is important, it's easy to overemphasize and make this the main focus. We should prioritize other elements, such as, is this someone I trust and respect? Are they able to see beyond their own needs to take genuine concern for those of others? Are they growing in relationship with God in prayer and in virtue? Do they have a plan for their lives that's compatible with the demands of marriage? Try not to turn a blind eye to their shortcomings. When you marry someone, you marry who they are right now, not who they could be in the future. But we also balance this with not overanalyzing every encounter and conversation. This is why it's important to know what you're looking for in a future spouse, to be ready to have challenging conversations with the one you're dating, and to bring their strengths and weaknesses before the Lord in prayer during honest discernment. If you're in a place to move ahead, the next big question is how, as in how to go about it. We have to unlearn some of the ways the world teaches us to approach dating if we're serious about putting Christ at the center. As always, but especially in this season, trust in God is absolutely essential. Dating differently. Maybe you're dating now, or you hope to be someday. Maybe you will be in a celibate vocation, but will work with dating couples. Regardless, it's important to have a vision for how a healthy dating relationship can set a foundation for a strong marriage. Many of the same principles apply to both dating and marriage, yet are lived out in a different way. Dating couples are also meant to will the good of the other. By honestly reflecting on the following question, they go a long way towards living this out. Are the decisions we are making helping us as individuals live out our relationships with Christ and be open to his will for our lives? Now apply that question to the whole of your relationship. How often do we talk? Through what means do we talk? Texting, phone, in person, etc. What do we talk about? How often do we spend time together? Where do we spend time together? What do we do when we spend time together? What physical boundaries do we have in place? The faster a relationship goes, especially in the areas of emotional, spiritual, and physical bonds, the harder it will be to be detached from the other person. This is why something called pacing is so helpful. When I started dating my now husband, we began by going on dates every other week. This pace gave me space to not get swept up in the emotions, which were there, obviously, but to really be seeking the Lord and practically discerning whether this man had the qualities I was looking for. Eventually, as our relationship progressed, we went on dates weekly, but even still, we made sure not to share too much of the deep personal details of our lives too fast. We were also mindful about spiritual intimacy and pacing that as well. We didn't even start praying together until further along in our relationship. As we had been dating for a while, these areas of emotional, spiritual, and physical progressed, but we always had to be discerning how these areas could glorify God and help us to, again, continue to grow in our own relationships with Christ and be open to His will for our lives. It's normal and so good for relationships to start with an overwhelming amount of excitement and attraction. This must mature, however, as godly friendship grows. A dating relationship, and especially a marriage, 
cannot survive on attraction alone, nor even on romance alone. It takes a solid friendship built on agape, that is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. It takes solid communication, which is truly a lifelong journey, as well as respect, understanding, and time. This is not easy. I repeat, this is not easy. A relationship naturally wants to progress, and sometimes it can feel like you're holding back the floodgates with this kind of approach. But it's worth it to build a solid foundation instead of only getting swept up in the emotions. Dating, like marriage, is about more than just two people. The gift is meant to be shared, and couples who are outward-facing in their relationship understand this. Did you ever have a friend who started dating and then disappeared? I have, and it really sucks. On the other hand, those who stay open and hospitable, who are committed to brotherhood and sisterhood, enrich their own lives as well as their community. Naturally, this carries over into their marriage if that's where the Lord takes them. Think of it, our need for strong friendships doesn't end when our married lives begin. We still need other relationships, and an outward-facing couple allows these connections to keep going deeper. An outward-facing couple is poised to influence the world in a powerful way, just as we talked about previously. If I took a poll of all of my married friends who were a part of SPO and asked them what helped them during their dating relationship, I bet among their top responses would be the blessing of pastoral care. An older brother or sister in Christ who provides support, encouragement, accountability, and wisdom. Because this approach to dating is hard, it's nearly impossible to do alone. Men, maybe you hate asking for directions, but please hear me on this. To share personally, my pastoral leader was a true older sister to me as Joe and I were dating. She encouraged me, called me onto holiness, and held me accountable in love. And Joe was open with his pastoral leader every step of the way and was receptive to the wisdom offered to him. Hands down, the pastoral care we received when we were dating was and still is one of the most impactful gifts God gave us. Marriage, like dating, is deeply personal, and we're going to approach these relationships in a variety of ways. And my hope has been to offer tested wisdom while encouraging creative application. In other words, I want to get your wheels turning, not overwhelm you with a list. There's no way in one chapter we can cover such a rich subject, but I hope this provides a springboard for discussion. Engage your small group in real conversations about this. Talk with your one-on-one pastoral leader about where you're at with this topic, what your hopes are, what your fears are, etc. Spend time with married couples and ask them questions about what it's actually like to be married. And what did they do as a dating couple that helped them build a strong foundation? Most importantly, Bring your hopes and fears to the Lord and pray that he will increase your trust in him as you go about discernment.